Let's take a moment and pray together, shall we? Father, it is uh, great to be here this morning to uh, be focused in on Christmas and the birth of Jesus Christ. Pray, Lord, that you would help us this morning to understand it in some of its depth and richness and grab a hold of some of its meaning. Um, Father, don't let us take it lightly, especially as we uh, approach to celebrate it this uh, this week. Help us to enjoy it as a time with family and friends and all the celebrations, but in the midst of that, help us to see it for what it is, the birth of our Savior. Well, this morning, as we look at uh, the scriptures to impress that upon us in perhaps some new, new ways, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We've been in the midst of a series uh, called When God Visits, and it was our way of kind of marking Advent this year. Advent means appearing. So we thought it'd be fun to go to scripture and pick some places where there was a theophany. A theophany just means an appearing of God, theos God and phonos light or appearing. And it's been fun. Uh, we've got to pick some things we wanted to preach on. Larry talked about Daniel, and then I talked a little bit about Exodus 33 and Moses. And then last week, uh, Larry talked about Simeon preparing for the visit of Christ. We, we kind of talked about little visits small bees and big visits. The big visit is this morning, the visit uh, of Jesus. And Simeon was kind of preparing for the big visit. So this morning, we want to look at uh, the visit of Jesus to our world. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but if you go to the scriptures, there are actually two different versions of the Christmas story. Uh, one of them is we're very familiar with. It's the, the events that we see in both the Gospel of Matthew and Luke. And we're, we're very familiar with that story. You could tell me the story. It begins with the announcement to, to Mary that she's going to be with child. It, then we get Joseph, and then we get the journey to Bethlehem and, and uh, you know, the manger scene and, and the angels showing up and wise men. I mean, we know all that and we fill it with all kinds of nostalgia and sentimentality and that's great. We should. It's just awesome. It's, it's this great story and that's what captures us at, at Christmas time and we see that as the story of Christmas. But there is another version of the story um, that doesn't focus on the events but really focuses on the meaning behind the events and it, it's far more abstract and far more philosophical. We, we find it in the Gospel of John in the first chapter. He tells us the story of Christmas in a very different way. In fact, it was interesting. I was looking online for art uh, that would depict the stories of Christmas. And when you look for the events, you know, you want a picture of the nativity or the manger scene or, or the angels speaking to the shepherds or the wise. You can find there's just tons of art on that. But if you want to find any art depicting the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, man, there is nothing. <laughs> nothing. Because it's a lot harder to depict. But quite honestly, between the two stories, John's story is maybe more significant because it tells us the meaning behind the events. Uh, we want to read John chapter 1, 
verses 1 through 14, and then we're going to focus in on the key verse, verse 14, and explore it this morning. So read with, read with me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe he himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and though the world was made through him, The world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We're going to focus in on uh, verse 14 there. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Uh, We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son of God who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Because it captures, I think, the meaning of Christmas, the real meaning of Christmas. What John does in that verse is uh, he answers a number of questions. The first question he's going to answer and we're going to look at is what what happened? And then the second question is why did it happen? And the third thing he he tells us is what the results were. So those three three things. What happened? Why did it happen? And what were the results? We're going to look at this morning. So what happened at Christmas? What was really going on? John says that what happened at Christmas is that the Word became flesh. Now, we read that and that's a little ho-hum for us. And that's because we don't really grasp what John is saying. When he says the Word became flesh, he is using a, a particular word from the Greek for word, and it's the word logos. This is what we get the word logic from, and it points to this notion of rationality. And he's picking up a Greek concept that was current at the time. Uh, It was kind of their understanding of God. He's adapting a bit to his culture. They saw the Logos, this mastermind of the the universe, the, the creative principle, the force behind everything, the thing that made it all a plan, the source of life, the thing that was behind all the natural laws. It was the integrating mind of the cosmos. That was Logos. I mean, look at how he describes it in verses 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. So John is saying, whatever, how you see this Logos, that's God. That's God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. So he's saying, that's, that's this Logos. But the amazing thing is, is that that Logos, that mind that gave the plan to the whole creation of the universe that is behind all of it, 
isn't impersonal. In fact, just the opposite. That logos became flesh. This week, I watched an interesting DVD on the Star of Bethlehem. And people have always been trying to figure out what was it that the Magi who were in Babylon saw in the sky that let them know that this king was going to be born. And there's all kinds of theories. Some people say it was just a, uh, a miracle in the moment that God created in the sky. Other people say it was actually a natural phenomenon. Now, one man uh, put this DVD together and he is making the argument that what the Magi saw was really the planet Jupiter aligning with the planet Venus and then the star Regulus. And that if you look at that carefully, you can see that it meets all the criteria described in the New Testament about the star. What is interesting is he's making the argument that stars don't move much, but planets actually can. They can move across the sky and then they can do this weird thing which is called retrograde. And it's because the way the earth turns and the stars move, uh, the star can appear to actually move backwards. And his argument is that that's what the Magi saw. What is interesting is there is software now uh, that you can use to look at what the stars would look like from any place on earth at any moment in time because the stars all move to very precise mathematical equations. And what he did is he took this software and he went back to the time of Herod in the New Testament and he said, I'm looking at the sky from the place of Babylon and then began to see what he would see. And he found out that if you watch Jupiter in line with Venus, it became this brilliant star in the sky that moved across the sky and then reappeared and then stopped and fit all the criteria of the star of Bethlehem. And some people say, well, Nick, you're, you're just trying to make something that's a miraculous thing be very natural. And as I thought about that, I began to realize that if it's a natural thing, it's a greater miracle than a miracle that God just did at the moment. I mean, I mean think about it. There are a billion trillion stars in the universe. That's uh, a one with 15 zeros. That's a lot of stars. And scripture tells us that God spoke those into existence. And if you believe that the star of Bethlehem was a natural event, then what you're saying is that the moment that God created the universe, put those billions and billions and billions and billions of stars, he knew at that very moment that at a precise time in history, he would become flesh. And he marked that in the skies. In other words, the universe became this clockwork that was working towards this very moment. So at that very moment, those magi in Babylon could see what God was going to do displayed in the stars. Now that's pretty phenomenal. That's the logos, the plan of God, the rationality of God being manifest. Now, John says something amazing about that, though. He says that the Word became flesh. Now, the word for flesh is the Greek word sarx, 
And typically when, it's the word we get sarcophagus from. Typically when we think of the flesh, we think of our skin and our bones and the meat. The word sarx, flesh, in the Greek doesn't mean simply your bones and your skin. It, it actually is a word that describes the totality of a person. The totality of a person, their mind, their emotions, their intellect, their will. Uh, when you say, uh, talk about sarks, you're talking about the whole of a person. What John is arguing at that moment is just amazing. He's saying that the Logos, God, decided to become human. Fully, fully human. That's an amazing thing. Because remember, this Logos, he is the one who created everything. You know, sometimes I think we make too little of Jesus. We see him as a nice man. We treat him in kind of a sentimental way. We see him as a good person. But too often we make him too small. J.B. Phillips wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. I think we need a book that says Your Jesus is Too Small. He's not, he, not just a human being, he's God in human form. I mean, look at what Colossians 1 says about Jesus. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth and visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And yet John says, he became human flesh. The creator became a creature. That's amazing. I like the way that Max Lucado describes this. He says, stepping from the throne, he removed his robe of light and wrapped himself in skin, pigmented human skin. The light of the universe entered a dark, wet womb. He who angels worship nestled himself in the placenta of a peasant was birthed into the cold night and then slept on cow's hay. Mary didn't know whether to call him junior or father, but in the end called him Jesus, since that is what the angel said and since she didn't have the faintest idea what to name a god she could cradle in her arms. Neither Mary nor Joseph said it, but don't you think their heads tilted and their minds wondered, what in the world are you doing, God? Or better phrased, God, what are you doing in the world? Can you imagine what it was like for the Logos, the infinite, to become finite? To become a baby that wet his diapers and messed his pants, that burped and upchucked and cried and when he was two drove his parents nuts as they tried to worship in the synagogue all without sin what that was like for God to become flesh that's what I would call downward mobility I had a friend Michael uh, he actually was on staff here for a while uh, a number of years ago back, he took a, a mission trip during a summer to the Philippines with his wife, Leah. And when they were there, they went to Manila. Manila is a, a city of about 10 
million people. And while they were in Manila, they visited, visited the Manila garbage dump. Um, and it's just a horrific place. It's the garbage disposal uh, for the city of Manila. It's about seven miles square, and it's just this huge, huge pile of refuse and trash. And if you go there, you uh, realize how, how horrible it is. It, uh, flies all around, stray animals all around. It smells horrific, rotting refuse. It's wet and there's mud, and, and it's just all the discards of humanity in this dump in Manila. What's really sad is there are about 9,000 Filipinos who live in the dump and make their living by trying to recycle the garbage that all Manila throws away. And it's a terrible place to live. There are some people who live in that dump who are born there, live there, built shacks out of the things everybody throws away, try to make a life there, get married there, have children there, and eventually die there without ever leaving the confines of the dump, without ever even going into the city of Manila. It's a horrible, horrible existence. When Mike and Leah went there, they were taken there by a man named David Anderson. Uh, David was actually a businessman who lived, had lived and worked in Montana, had a very successful business, had just finished building his dream house. He was married and he had two kids. And suddenly God showed up in his life and he heard the voice of God calling him to the mission field. And he obeyed and he went. And the mission field that God called him to was the Manila dump. I, I, I think about that and I think about what an incredible distance it is from Montana in a great house to living in the shadow of the Manila dump. What a huge distance. And then I realized that is nothing, nothing at all compared to the distance Jesus took from being the creator of the universe to becoming a human being and fleshed. But what it means if Jesus really is human, what it means is, is that he understands us. He's experienced what we've experienced. He's become vulnerable like we've become vulnerable. If Jesus was human, and he was, that meant that he knew what it was to be hungry and to be thirsty, to be tired and to be exhausted. He knew what it was to be disappointed and to be sad and to be depressed and to be discouraged knew what it was to be betrayed, knew what it was to be mistreated, knew what it was to be abused physically and emotionally. He knew what it was to feel grief at the loss of a friend. He knew what it was to be angry. He knew what it was to experience life as you and I experience life. It's God come near in a way that makes him vulnerable, in a way that makes him like us. That's what happened at Christmas.
John not only tells us what happened at Christmas, but he tells us why. But he does so in kind of an interesting way. He says this, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, that word for made his dwelling is a really interesting word. I, I like the way that Eugene Peterson translates this, this passage in the Bible. He says, The Word became flesh and, and moved into the neighborhood. I like that translation a lot, but I realize that it really misses part of the point that John is making. See, there's all kinds of very common Greek words that John could have picked to describe him living in our midst or residing with us. But he picks a very particular word, the Greek word skao, skao, I'm sorry. And it is a Greek word that was used in the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament for a particular word in the Old Testament that referred to a tent or a tabernacle. Skao actually means to live in a tent, uh, to bivouac. And you read that, and you realize that the verse should be translated, uh, the word became flesh, and he tabernacled in our midst. And then you begin to ask yourself, why did he choose to use that word? And you go back to the Old Testament tabernacle. The tabernacle was kind of this mobile tent structure. It had an out, outer boundary that was about 75 feet by 150 feet. And then inside was kind of a tent structure. And it was mobile. The, they would tear it down and move it as they made their way through the wilderness. Now the tabernacle did two things. It, it was the localized manifestation of the presence of God. In other words, God dwelt in the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies in a special way, in a way that he didn't dwell any place else. So he's the presence of God in their midst. In fact, they would put the tabernacle in the middle of the camp. So there were three tribes to the north, three tribes to the south, three tribes to the east, and three tribes to the west. So, so God was in the very middle of the camp. But not only did the tabernacle represent the presence of God, the tabernacle also was symbolic of how you could reconnect or, or enter back into communion with God. It's a structure that kind of played out the sacrificial system that resulted in the ability to be back in relationship with God. It was interesting. You would go into the tabernacle and the first thing you would come upon is the brazen altar. And it was saying the first thing, if you're going to be in communion with God, is you have to deal with sin. And on the brazen altar, they would take and sacrifice animals. And on the day of atonement, they would take and sacrifice a lamb. And it took the shedding of blood to forgive sin. And so it began there. Then beyond the brazen altar was the laver. It was just this big wash tub filled with, with water. And the priest would sacrifice the animal. Then he'd go to the laver and wash himself, in a sense, symbolically washing away the sin. And then once having done that, he was ready to enter into the, the holy place, which was the tent in the middle of the tabernacle. And uh, once you got into the holy place... Uh, you discovered that it was divided in half. There was the, the outer part of the holy place and then what was called the holy of holies. And those two were um, 
divided by this huge veil that became a barrier and kept people out of the Holy of Holies. You'd walk in and on your left would be the, the candelabra. It was the only light in the holy place. It had seven candles and it was light in the darkness. And then on your right would be the table of the showbread. That represented, they called it the, the table of the presence. And then there would be an altar of incense and the incense represented the prayers of the people and it filled the, the holy place with this incredibly rich aroma. Well, once a year on the Day of Atonement, a lamb would be sacrificed, the high priest would wash, and he would go into the holy place. And then he'd take some of the blood from the sacrifice of the lamb, and he'd go into the Holy of Holies, past the veil. And that was a dangerous thing to do. In fact, they would tie a rope on the foot of the high priest, because if he messed up, God could strike him dead at an instant. And if they did, they wanted a way to get him out without going back in themselves. People had died in the tabernacle for disrespecting God or treating it without the proper respect, without following the proper rules. Well, once inside the Holy of Holies, there was a, a, a special box. It was made of gold. It's the Ark of the Covenant. And inside that box, if you were to open up, were the Ten Commandments and some of the manna that God fed the people and uh, uh, some other mementos from the history of Israel. But on the, the top of the box was what was called the mercy seat. And over that mercy seat were two cherubim, uh, statues of these angels reaching over it with their wings. And it was said that, that God's presence manifested itself on that mercy seat in that holy of holies and the high priest would go in and he would take the blood of the lamb and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat and that provided atonement or forgiveness for the people of God it's interesting as you read through the Old Testament there are times when God's glory shows up in the tabernacle in just amazing ways. Sometimes God's glory is seen as smoke and fire or pillars of fire at night or a cloud during the day. And sometimes it was just this, this Shekinah glory, this brilliant light that filled the tabernacle that was like the brightness of the sun. This was the presence of God in the midst of the people. But if you begin thinking about the tabernacle, it doesn't take you long to realize that it was symbolic of Jesus and the work he accomplished. Jesus also is the manifest presence of God. He is God with us, Emmanuel. He is described as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who sacrifices himself for our benefit. He is the water, the living water that provides us meaning and significance in life. He is the light of the world that brings light into the darkness. He is the bread of life. In John chapter 17, he is the one who prays for his church, his people, like incense going up to the Father. It is his blood that is shed on the mercy seat that brings about ultimate atonement. 
this tabernacle was incredibly important. When you talk about the billions of stars in the universe, there are four words to describe that, and God created the stars. The tabernacle is described in 50 chapters of the Bible. It's incredibly important. It was made up of three tons of gold and five tons of silver. You see, it's at the heart of what God is doing to bring us back into a relationship with God. And John doesn't want us to miss that. Jesus is the sacrifice for our sins that allows us back into communion with God. He becomes our replacement, our substitute. St. Augustine said that the Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons and daughters of men might become the sons and daughters of God. He became the one who took our place and took on our sin and died for us. I don't know if you've ever heard of a man named uh, Father Damien. He was a missionary uh, that served in Hawaii uh, on an island called Malaki. Malaki was a, a place where the Hawaiian government back in the 1890s decided they were going to quarantine lepers. On the northern part of that island is a peninsula and it's divided from the rest of the island by this really high mountain ridge and it's very difficult to get to the peninsula. There's only a pack trail mule to go over to that side. So they decided to put in uh, a settlement and have lepers live there because they thought that leprosy was a highly contagious disease. And it turns out that leprosy is not. Leprosy is actually uh, uh, caused by a bacteria. And it does ca cause scales and dry skin, but it also attacks your nerves so that you lose feeling. And the reason that lepers get disfigured is because oftentimes they won't have feeling in their extremities, in their fingers or their feet or their nose. They'll lose that feeling and they'll injure the tissue again and again and again. And after a time, it, it, it becomes deformed. But in that day, they'd isolate them because they were scared and they didn't understand it. Father Damien became a missionary to the lepers. That was his mission field and he worked in their midst for 16 years he became highly respected and highly loved among the people who lived in those colonies one morning he was preparing to go to speak at the daily worship service and as he was doing so he poured some scalding water into a cup uh, to drink and he swirled it and some of it fell out and as it fell out it fell onto his bare feet and he saw it happen, but he didn't feel anything on his feet. So he took uh, some of the scalding water and he poured it on the same place where the water had dripped. And he felt nothing. And he was scared to death because he knew at that moment what had happened. 
he made his way to the worship service and typically when he would begin his sermon, he always began with the same opening line. He would say, my fellow believers. But this morning, he changed his line and he began his sermon with the opening, my fellow lepers. He had become one of them. Jesus becomes flesh, and as flesh, he becomes vulnerable and killable, and he goes to the cross. And on the cross, he takes our place. And not only does he take our place, but he takes on our disease. He becomes sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it this way, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I think sometimes when we get to Christmas, we suffer from seasonal amnesia. Uh, Seasonal amnesia is the intentional forgetting of what it is we're actually celebrating. See, it's really not just the birth of a baby that marks Christmas. It's God becoming flesh that marks Christmas. If Jesus was just another baby and grew up to be a good man and then died, we wouldn't be marking the day. But if he is God arriving in flesh, and if the baby grows up, lives an amazing life, but then goes to the cross to become our sacrifice and pay for our sin, and then is resurrected in glorious splendor, then we have every reason in the world to celebrate Christmas. That's the why. So John tells us what God becomes, the word becomes flesh. He tells us why, because Jesus has come to rescue us. And then he describes the result. He says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. That word glory is the Greek word doxa, and it means something to be praised, something important, uh, something to be given weight. And it goes back to the Old Testament notion of glory. And if you think back uh, just a few weeks when we were talking about Exodus 33 and Moses seeing the face of God and coming into the tent where he met with God, do you remember the request that Moses made of God? He said, God, I want to see your glory. I want to see your essence. I want to see the fullness of who you are. And back then in the Old Testament, the notion was that if you saw the glory of God, you would die. And the glory was always described as something magnificent in terms of this brilliant light and this fire and this smoke. And it was just this huge thing that was awesome that would blow you away. And God says to Moses, no, you can't. Because if you see it, you'll die. You can't see the glory of God. You can't touch the glory of God. You can't know the glory of God. But John says, no. In Jesus, we have seen the glory of God. The glory of the one and only Son, and the wording there is describing the fact that Jesus is exactly who God is. They are the same, the one and only, the exact replica, the unique replica, the unique God himself who came from the Father. But then he says something else. He says, we have seen the glory, and this is the glory, full of grace 
and truth. The word for full is this word pleroma, which means overflowing. And he's saying when you saw Jesus, he was just overflowing with grace, graciousness, favor, and truth. Not truth from falsely, but truth in the terms of authentic, real faithfulness. What amazes me is John is saying, look, the word becomes flesh, and he tabernacles among us, and we get to see his glory. But understand his glory. It's very different than you might imagine. It's full of graciousness and truth. You've got to remember that John was the disciple who Jesus loved the most. He was the one who was most intimate with Jesus, the one that knew Jesus best, the one that was closest to him. And in his gospel, we get a description of the manifestation of the glory of Jesus. We see Jesus' glory when he goes to a man named Nicodemus, an old man, very religious, had the whole Old Testament memorized, but was incredibly lonely. And he tells him, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You see the glory of Jesus when, when he goes to a woman at the well and asks her for a drink and teach, treats her with dignity, even though she's despised by her village, he honors her and challenges her and loves on her. You see his glory when the, the religious leaders bring a woman caught in adultery and throws, they throw her at his feet expecting Jesus to stone her. And instead, Jesus doesn't condemn her, but forgives her, raises her up, and challenges her to live differently and changes her life. You see the glory of Jesus when he meets a man born blind, blind for all his life, and he bends down and he makes mud out of his spittle and the dirt and puts it on the man's eyes and then takes that away and suddenly the man sees and he tells the man you're not insignificant you have a purpose and God's at work in your life you see the glory of Jesus when when he comforts Martha and Mary because they've lost their brother Lazarus and Jesus gloriously weeps with them and gives them words of hope that he is the resurrection and the life and those who believe in him never die and then he stands in front of the tomb of Lazarus and shouts come forth and Lazarus does and you see the glory of Jesus when he bows down before his disciples and having taken a towel to wrap around him begins to wash the dirt and the grime and the mud off their feet and challenges them to do likewise. But most of all, you see the glory of Jesus when he goes to the cross and he allows his hands to be pierced and his feet to be pierced and allows himself to be lifted up and gives up his life for us. And then he's gloriously 
resurrected. You see, the glory of God, the glory of Jesus that we behold may be very different than what we expect. But that's Christmas. That's what we mark at Christmas. The coming of the Logos into our world to become human, to rescue us so that we may know the essence of God and see his glory. That's why we celebrate. That's why it's a Merry Christmas. We're going to end this morning with the lighting of the Christ candle and singing together what child is this and as we do that I want you to reflect on what Christmas truly is about would you pray with me let's stand first let's pray together father we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ the word become flesh who tabernacled among us, was willing to come and allow himself to be our atonement, our sacrifice, the one who was then resurrected. Father, we want to see his glory in our lives, his graciousness and his truthfulness, and may it be part of our lives as well. Help us think deeply about Christmas this Christmas. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
Hope to see you back on Christmas Eve. Services are at 1, 3, 5, and 7. You can help us out by coming to either the 1 o'clock or 7 if that works for your family and your friends. If it doesn't, please come when it does. But those uh, middle services get really packed, so we want to make sure that there's room for everybody. Let's uh, close with a benediction. Father, may we uh, see Christmas for what it is, this unbelievable, amazing truth that you became flesh in Jesus Christ. May that reality change our lives forevermore. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Merry Christmas.